It's the end of September 2020, and the COVID-19 pandemic is still going strong. Let's catch up on some of the latest updates and news here on this special coronavirus bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to use this platform to educate and inform you, The Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take anything you learn here that you find useful and share it with others. I'll now be publishing these COVID-19 bonus episodes once a month towards the end of the month. These episodes are always free of corporate sponsorship. It's just about education and information. Please share if you feel moved to do so. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-16. Anything shared in these episodes about the pandemic is the most up-to-date information I can find, as well as personal opinions and reactions. This situation is changing on a dime, as always, so remember that anything I share might have changed by the time we go to press. Nothing shared in these episodes is meant, of course, for diagnosis or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local Department of Health, or any other evidence-based resource that you trust. And if you hear or read something I've shared or that any of my guests have shared that you think is erroneous or misguided, email me at keith at nursekeith.com with any evidence or data that you can provide me so that I can learn and post a public correction. Thanks for understanding, and please keep safe and keep informed. So, yes, we are at the end of September 2020. We are now, gosh, less than a month and a half away from the presidential election here in the United States. And, of course, the political situation is heating up. Just recently, you may have heard that the CDC walked back its testing guidelines, and they're redefining the need for testing. And I personally believe, and others believe as well, that they're walking that back so that the president can actually say they're meeting the standards that they have actually set. Even more controversially, in my opinion, the CDC has reversed its airborne transmission information and its opinion about that particular issue. This has caused confusion among the public, a divided country, and of course, it's a muddled message that does nothing for what we need to do in order to keep the citizenry informed and trusting of public information from the government and other officials. Dr. Anthony Fauci is totally behind the aerosolization hypothesis, which at this juncture is said by most folks I trust, well, actually everybody I trust, that it's not a hypothesis, that this is, this is true, that it's not just large respiratory droplets when we're coughing, sneezing, laughing, singing, etc. It is also aerosolized, and in indoor spaces, that aerosolization can cause the virus to hang out in unventilated spaces for quite some time, multiple hours, in fact. So epidemiology specialists and public health officials are scratching their heads and seeing this change in the CDC's position as 100% political. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, our leading infectious disease expert here in the U.S., agrees that it makes absolutely no sense to walk back the aerosolization issue because it is actually true. Now, the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, has 
summarily dismissed reports that he had pressured the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to soften new stricter guidelines that the agency was preparing for the emergency authorization of the coronavirus vaccines that are being developed and actually being produced now as we speak so that if they are approved, they can roll them out pretty quickly. He completely dismissed that that had happened, but many of us, of course, don't believe Mark Meadows and believe that the FDA has been pressured to ease those restrictions so that the vaccine can be pushed out sooner, most likely because of the upcoming election and the impact that could have. But for what I'm reading and hearing and and surmising from the news is that we're not going to get a vaccine rolled out before the election. Sorry, President Trump, it's not going to happen. And even if we start getting it rolled out, it's going to go to healthcare providers first. It's not going to go to the general public. And then we're going to have to work on risk mitigation and who's going to get it first and who's going to get it last. And, you know, I think I've spoken about this here on the show before that just because we get a vaccine approved with efficacy and safety, those two things are very important. And just because it gets produced, do we have enough produced? Is it being produced well and safely? And how do we get it distributed and then actually put in the arms of people who need it? I've run vaccine drills in a town of 20,000 people. And even for a town of 5,000 people, that is a big, big logistical undertaking. And if we can't get our testing right here in the United States, how are we possibly going to get vaccine distribution and actually the giving of the vaccine to people, how are we going to get that right in any due course? So we're actually looking into 2021 for the vaccine to be rolled out, depending which vaccines are actually approved. And there will be multiple, mind you, but we just don't know when, where, we know why, and we're not sure exactly how, because it is a massive logistical undertaking, and we're, we've not been on top of it these last eight months or so, and I don't believe the distribution of the vaccine is going to be any different. I hope I'm wrong, but we will just have to wait and see. Now, over at globalcitizen.org, there was a response index put out uh, sometime in the last month or so about the countries with the best COVID responses. Now, you may have heard that Senegal, I believe, was number three. New Zealand was number one. Iceland was way up there. And the U.S., well, we were pretty far down the bottom. We were totally beat out by Senegal. Good for Senegal. They've got it together. And of course, you might argue that, oh, that's because we're such a big country. We're so complex. But this was per capita data. This was not based on, you know, the the relative size of the country. This was per capita and our general response to the virus. So I'll have a link to that globalcitizen.org article, that webpage, with the information about the countries with the best COVID-19 response. It is pretty interesting to see. And, you know, as I said, we've got New Zealand, Senegal, Iceland, Denmark, Saudi Arabia. Those are the top five. So we had some stiff competition and the U.S. has definitely got to get it together. Speaking of the U.S., 
getting it together, well, we have hit what in the news they say so often is a grim milestone. I'm really tired of that term, but it's grim. We have hit 205,000 dead. We're actually over 205,000 dead now. And based on the stats, the United States is 4% of the world's population. That's 4%, no matter how important we think we are. And we are 20% of global deaths. So just think about that in terms of how we have rated in terms of our viral pandemic response. Now just think about 200,000 people for a second. 200,000 people is the population of Salt Lake City. That's a pretty big city. And that is more people dead than the last five wars that the United States has been involved in combined. Combined. More people dead. Now, think back on 9-11-2001. Sorry to remind you, but it's a horrible day. But think back on that. 3,000 or so people died on 9-11. It was a moment a day that changed the world forever. And we're still feeling the reverberations of 9-11 to this day, of course. And remember and continue to note how we grieve and mourn those 3,000 people dead. And they should be grieved and mourned, mind you. Of course, we've built monuments to them. We've had songs and celebrations and memorials and all fully deserved and warranted. Now think about 205,000 people dead over a less than the course of a year here in the U.S. alone. That is a lot of people. And I hear folks say things like, well, it's just 200,000 or it's just about 1,000 people a day. And my response always is, well, tell that to the families and loved ones of the 205,000 people who have died. This is a pandemic that's not going away. It hasn't gone away. We can't wish it away. We still have to fight. We still have to push. And unfortunately, the world is now approaching a million deaths. And a million people is a heck of a lot of people. And that's a heck of a lot of grief and loss and mourning that's going on all around the world. Just this past weekend, as according to the New York Times on September 27, 2020, on this past Saturday, India, the world's second most populous nation, continued to lead the world in daily virus-related deaths with approximately 7,700 deaths over the most recent seven-day period, and that's putting it right around 1,100 deaths per day. The United States is second with more than 5,000 in the last week. So that's now under 1,000 per day, which is a good, we're heading in the right direction, but 5,000 deaths is 5,000 too many. Brazil is third with more than 4,800 over the period of seven days prior to the report. And Mexico is fourth with nearly 3,000 over the previous seven days. These four countries, India, the United States, Brazil, and Mexico account for more than half of the world's total deaths from the virus, according to the New York Times database. The staggering scale of this loss is really hard to fathom. And to put it in other terms, we just talked about 9-11, 3,000 people dying in one day. Well, the number of people who've died from 
the pandemic so far is equivalent to the suffering, the effects of 109 Hurricane Katrinas, that's another way of looking at it, or enduring the 9-11 attacks every day for 66 days. That's another way to tie 9-11 in with the level of loss that we are experiencing. So we need to take a deep breath, reassess where we are, just like the nursing process says, assess, diagnose, plan, implement, and evaluate. And we have a lot more work to do, my friends. Now, a recent article in Nature by Martha Lincoln was a study of the role of hubris, pride, in nation's COVID-19 response. And here's an interesting quote from Ms. Lincoln from this article in Nature. Quote, Just last year, the United States was considered one of the countries best equipped to confront a virus such as SARS-CoV-2. Others included the United Kingdom, Brazil, and Chile, nations ranked by the Comprehensive Global Health Security Index as being among the world's most prepared. Yet since the pandemic began, these countries have delivered some of the worst outcomes. The United States leads the world in both total cases and total deaths. Brazil's fatalities are second. Chile's per capita cumulative case rate is the second highest in Latin America. And the United Kingdom has the highest rate of COVID-19 deaths per capita of all the G7 countries. What might explain these staggering failures? One thing these countries have in common is exceptionalism, a view of themselves as outliers in some way distinct from other nations. The COVID-19 responses suggest that exceptionalist worldviews can be associated with worse public health outcomes. Researching this association could help in redefining preparedness and allow more accurate prediction of pandemic successes and failures. I will have a link in the show notes for sure to this recent article in Nature by Martha Lane. Lincoln, studying the role of hubris in nation's COVID-19 response. Now, moving on to things like PPE, shortages of N95s are still being reported around the United States. Here in the U.S. alone, it's said that we have an estimated need of more than a billion masks N95s for healthcare workers, and we're apparently still hundreds of millions short. So even though 3M, the company that has really, really stepped up in terms of the production of N95 masks, we are still short supplied. And I still hear about nurses and other healthcare providers who are using their masks too many times without being able to switch to another mask. Now, in terms of colleges, yes, a lot of colleges are now having in-person classes with strict or maybe not so strict distancing guidelines. I have some young friends who've gone off to college, um, several for the first time, and colleges are proving to be, of course, as predicted, some of the hotspots, the new hotspots, and yes, professors, many of whom might be older and might have underlying conditions, can also get sick. It's not just the students. But yeah, we are seeing sick students. And I heard a incredible report on the New York Times Daily Podcast a few weeks ago. I'll try to find that report about the University of Alabama. I think it's Tuscaloosa. And um, I'm just going to write this down for you so I remember New York Times pod about 
the university, and it was about the university's egregious approach to how they were quarantining students or not quarantining students and treating the ones who were in quarantine like pariahs and not taking good care of them and not providing good follow-up or counseling. The New York Times broke the story. One student very bravely, gamely came forward, and that story actually caused the university to change course immediately and improve the care of students who had been quarantined once they tested positive. So, some good things are happening in the colleges, and we need to make sure as parents, as friends, as supporters, we need to make sure the colleges stay up to date, up to snuff, do the testing they need to do, and keep our kids safe. Now, we all know that um, college entrance exams, ACTs, have been hobbled by the virus. They've also been hobbled by the fires on the West Coast. A lot of kids aren't able to take their ACTs. Many, many top Universities and colleges are dropping their requirement for kids to even take the SATs, the scholastic aptitude tests, which many of us who feel that these types of exams are just don't really tell us much about kids' aptitudes anyway, we think it's a great thing. But a lot of these major colleges are dropping the SAT requirement. So hopefully, all of the kids we know who want to get into schools, take their tests, and get accepted can do so because we need education to continue because we need the economy and the world to continue and we can't have universities and colleges shutting down for lack of tuition and we can't have students not going to school when they need to learn and move forward in their lives so i hope 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 that we will be able to get our heads around this and keep our college and university students and athletes safe. Now, as of this past weekend, the last weekend of September, 21 states in the union here in the U.S. are reporting increased cases, which some are calling a fall surge. Cases are rising in Alabama, Alaska, Colorado, Idaho, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, where I live, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oregon, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, Washington State, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. So whatever we're doing, it's not enough. I know a lot of us are tired of social distancing. We're tired of not being able to do the things we want to do. Many of us, myself included, sometimes are relaxing. And we need to really look at how we're going to handle the holiday season, how we're going to handle as the flu takes off, and how we want to make sure that we can stay safe and keep these numbers down and not going north instead. We need the numbers to be going south. So there's a lot to think about here. And just circling back to this issue of the PPE and the N95s, I just wanted to point out that the ANA, the American Nurses Association, did an N95 survey not that long ago, and that was reported on MedPage today. I will have the link in the show notes. And the answers to this survey about N95 said that 68% of nurses said they were required to reuse N95 masks in the two weeks before taking the survey, compared with 62% who responded so in the May survey, and 58% were reusing masks for five days or more, compared with 43% back in May. 
Additionally, 62% of nurses felt unsafe with reusing masks, and 55% felt unsafe using decontaminated masks, both similar to rates found in the May survey. So just circling back to this N95 issue, nurses still are not feeling terribly comfortable about what is going on out there in the world around the N95s and the reuse therein. I'm also going to have in the show notes a link to a uh, audio uh, file and an article by NPR, National Public Radio, about a crisis within a crisis, food insecurity and COVID-19. It's a great piece. It's a mm, it's a disquieting piece, but we need to hear it because food insecurity is real. And as people continue to not have the help from the government they need to stay afloat financially, so many families are reporting having to skip paying bills in order to buy food. Food insecurity is real. And if there's anything you are able to do about food insecurity in your neck of the woods, please do so. If you have money to give to your local food depot, if you want to help with food distributions, if you want to just... um, If you want to donate food you have in your home that you don't need, please keep that in mind, especially as the holiday season comes and people are going to be tighter and tighter in terms of trying to make their money and their food last as the holiday season. And also the season of heating, having to pay heating bills approaches. So see what you can do for people in your community, or if you need help, make sure you reach out for help from your local authorities. Now, there was also an article recently I saw about um, airline flights that they may actually, well, long flights may be more risky than originally thought. And I've had these thoughts recently. A uh, family I know recently was returning to the United States, having traveled back to Haiti to see some family members. And they came into the airport They were not tested. They were asked some questions, and they were just sent on their merry way on their own recognizance to get tested. Now, they didn't need to quarantine. They didn't need to get tested if they didn't want to. And of course, they did because they're very upstanding citizens and wanted to do the right thing. But I've been wondering all along, since back in March and April 2020, when I was saying we should just shut down the airspace like we did after 9-11 and just not let people fly unless they absolutely had to for absolute essential purposes. Why are we allowing so many flights to continue when we're not having phalanxes of nurses and contact tracers stationed in every airport so that as people come into the country, we test them right there in the airport. We log the test. We log their information. We stay in touch with them when we follow them, just like we might follow a patient with tuberculosis, for instance. It makes a lot of common sense to test people as they come into the country, but of course, we'll say that it's too expensive. But again, tell that to the families and the loved ones of the 205,000 people who've died in this country alone so far. They'll say, well, isn't that worth it to save more lives and save more suffering and grief and loss if we could spend the money on better contact tracing and better testing regimens, especially at places like the airport where we have people who are captive audiences to get tested. 
Uh, but speaking of airlines and flights, two recent studies published in a journal state that looking at passengers and flight attendants on several different 15-hour flights from Boston to Hong Kong, who later tested positive for COVID-19, is it was found that the virus's genetic sequence in these test subjects were identical, saying that the virus can be transmitted airborne during air travel. Uh, another study examined a 10-hour flight from London to Hanoi, Vietnam. And of, of course, these are just several flights studied, but they do give us a, a snapshot. And they found that 16 people aboard that flight were found to have the virus, 12 of whom were seated in business class within two seats or rows of the only symptomatic person on the plane. So seating proximity is still strongly associated with increased infection risk, according to the study. The studies were both published in the journal Emerging Infectious Disease and are significant because travelers have slowly been returning to the air because of the need on some people's parts to travel and also because we haven't been completely clear in our communication about how infectious the disease is in enclosed spaces. These were flights that occurred back in March, and they don't necessarily spell out in the studies whether passengers were wearing masks. However, this still tells us, based on the information we know, that this virus is aerosolized, not just large droplets, it's tiny, tiny little microscopic droplets, and that when you're on a flight for a long period of time, even though the air is recirculated, et cetera, et cetera, that flights can be dangerous. So again, we still need to stay out of the air if absolutely possible. And we also need to stay out of enclosed spaces with people we don't know who aren't in our quote unquote pod. And we need to be careful when we travel out of state, out of the city where we live, et cetera. So there's a lot going on out there. There continues to be a lot going out there. And I recommend that you stay abreast of this through any of the channels that you find most useful. Of course, here at the Nurse Keith Show, if you would like. And I recommend Sanjay Gupta's Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction podcast and many, many other podcasts and journals that are out there. And I always say, head over to nytimes.com forward slash coronavirus as the New York Times continues to have all of its COVID-19 pandemic coverage free for everyone in the world. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of the Nurse Keith Show. And I'll be bringing you these episodes towards the end of each month from this point on. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-16. I know this wasn't all a lot of great news. I sound a little bit like Rachel Maddow on MSNBC giving you all the latest and greatest down and dirty news. But, you know, we have to talk about this stuff because it's real. I hope you feel informed and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your community. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities seeking to add a humanistic touch to education, educate the public from a scientifically informed perspective, and improve lives by partnering to address social ills. Check out all the podcasts at Ars Longa at arslonga.media. 
The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative, high quality podcasts, taking on the tough topics in health and care with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. You can find the Mayo Clinic, the New England Journal of Medicine, Penn Nursing's Amplify Nursing Podcast, Sanjay Gupta's Coronavirus Podcast, and much more, as well as, of course, yours truly, Nurse Keith. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Stay safe, stay informed, and be the nurse and healthcare professional and citizen who does the right thing in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. See you soon.